Love That Neighborhood is now on Patreon, which offers exclusive bonus content to members. For just 10 bucks a month, you can unlock bonus interviews, live streams, ebooks, and more. By becoming a Patreon member, you're helping us make more of the podcast content that you love and supporting our Urban Missions program. It's really easy to join. Just go to patreon.com slash love thy neighborhood. We'd love to have you with us as we explore discipleship and missions in our modern times. Again, go to patreon.com slash love thy neighborhood and sign up today. Love thy neighborhood. Okay. Oh, cool. oh definitely. <laughs> awesome. Discipleship and missions. For, for modern, modern times. times. Hey, uh, Jesse, Rachel, can I share something with you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Let me play this clip for you. Tiếp tục ca ngợi Ngài và bám chặt tới lời của Chúa là chính Ngài đi bên cạnh chúng con, ở trong lòng chúng con. Chúng con cảm ơn Ngài và hết lòng cầu nguyện. Nhân danh Chúa Giêsu Christ. Amen. Okay, what are we listening to? Yeah, okay, what, what first is of all, is that a cassette player? That's right. Yeah, this is uh, it's from Radio Shack. Well, Radio Shack. Nice. Yeah, you remember that? Okay, and what what was that? Yeah, so that was a recording of my uncle. He um, was a pastor at the Vietnamese church that I grew up in. Mm. Oh, cool. And wait, where was your church? Uh, so that's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So I grew up in Lancaster, and that's the church that I went to growing up. So is he? He's like giving a sermon in Vietnamese. Yeah, and I would have been there at the time. So, so do you go to a Vietnamese church now? Then? Well, now I don't actually. Since I moved here to Louisville, you know, I've been committed to a church where the majority of the people are not Vietnamese. But back home, many of the church members, you know, like me and my family, are of Vietnamese descent or have, you know, family ties to Vietnam. And there's even a Vietnamese church here in Louisville that I visit sometimes. Oh, wait, I've passed that before. It's like on the south side of town. Yeah, Louisville is home to a lot of immigrant churches, churches from East Africa, Latin America, South Asia, the Caribbean. But today's episode, it's really inspired by my experiences growing up in a Vietnamese immigrant church. And because East Asian cultures are what I'm most familiar with, the stories today are going to reflect that. Man, this sounds awesome. And I think, you know, I'm just going to sit back and, and listen. Cool. All right. Well, let's get to it. You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Anna Tran. Every episode, we hear stories of Christians trying to follow Jesus in our modern times. Today's episode is where the gospel meets the immigrant church. And specifically, we'll be talking about immigrant churches here in the United States. We'll be exploring what is an immigrant church, what's it like to grow up in one, and what can we in America Learn from other Christians following God in a land that doesn't feel like home. Welcome to our corner of the urban universe. I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours in Christian America. 
Okay, so Jesse, have you heard that quote before from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? Yeah, we actually opened our very first episode of the podcast ever with that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. So it sort of feels poetic that, you know, you as the new producer are opening your first episode with that. That was not intentional, I swear. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, when I hear it, you know, a lot of times we reference that clip when we think of like a picture of the multi-ethnic church, like this vision and revelation we're working towards. So wait, what does that quote exactly have to do with immigrant churches? Yeah. You know, I think sometimes when people critique, you know, local immigrant churches, this quote can get brought up because it seems to be reinforcing segregation. Yeah. Okay. So they're talking about, you know, segregation in the sense that a cultural group is separating themselves. Like that is really different than what Dr. King was addressing in which we're dealing with huge issues of oppression and, you know, forced segregation. It feels like apples and oranges, like not the same thing. For sure. So the other day I came across an article about this. And I decided to talk to the writer, Dr. Daniel K. Eng. He's also a professor of New Testament at Western Seminary. Segregation is a politically loaded word. It causes a visceral reaction because of the civil rights movement. And so I encourage people not to use the word segregation when we're talking about the church, because that's not the intent of, I would say, a lot of these churches. And it's unfair to drag them into a word that has so much political weight in America. I think it's unfair because it's not the intention to exclude people or to say that we're better than you. And Dr. Eng specifically makes a point in his article, it'd be wrong to associate immigrant churches with the same spirit of segregation. Yeah, I mean, in actuality, we see in scripture that Paul shared the gospel to different people groups in different ways, in ways that would make sense to them. So in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's writing to a church in conflict. They're actually divided over leaders. People were retreating into their own tribe saying, hey, I follow Paul, or no, I actually follow Paulus. Yeah, in our conversation, Dr. Eng talked about how Paul addressed those tensions with a message of unity. He's urging these people who are in different house churches in Corinth to be united, to be together. And so within that, Paul actually expresses different ministry approaches. In 1 Corinthians is where Paul says to those under the law, I became like those under the law. Those who are weak, I became like the weak. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. Again, Paul is writing to a bitterly divided church, and he's talking about different ministry approaches to different demographics. Yeah, I like how the uh, New Living Translation actually interprets this. So it says in chapter 9, verse 22, When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. And one of the purposes of immigrant churches is to be this sort of, you know, common ground space where people can find common ground with their cultural upbringing. So an immigrant church, it's exactly what it sounds like. A church mainly composed of or started by immigrants, people who've come to the U.S., from other countries. And in order to understand immigrant churches, I think we first need to look at what it's like to be an immigrant. And for that, I talked to one of my former teachers. Hi, my name is Fong Tran. I live in Philadelphia. I don't think I really knew your last name until like recently. <laughs> 
Wait, so hold on. Like, you guys had the same last name, but you never knew that? We do. I didn't know that. That's so funny. Yeah, I essentially called him Mr. Fong all my life. He taught Sunday school. Um, he cared for the teenagers and the young adults in my church. And so Fong, he grew up in Vietnam, in the southern city of Saigon, um, which is now called Ho Chi Minh City. My parents uh, migrated from uh, North Vietnam to South Vietnam in 1954. His father was a devout Catholic, and as a result, Fong went to mass almost every day. He was born in 1964 during war times. Oh yeah, so like right in the middle of the Vietnam War? Yeah, it was already in full swing. Wow. Once the war ended, the northern Vietnamese troops, they seized the capital of South Vietnam and, you know, it triggered a mass exodus. U.S. troops and southern Vietnamese people started to flee. The American airlift only took a fraction of those who wanted to leave. The order to evacuate American nationals is given. So Fong and his family, they had originally planned to leave by airplane to the United States. We waited and waited until the very end. By that time, all the airline and all the airport were shut down. So therefore, the only means for us to escape or to leave Vietnam was by sea. So it was in the morning on April 30th, 1975. The uncle of a family friend had connections to a merchant ship. And so he arranged for Fong, his older brother, his older sister, um, to leave Vietnam by boat. His parents didn't come because it would just be too hard for their age. And then they got on the boat, and get this, the ship was packed with over 4,000 people on board. Oh my gosh, that is a ton of people. We was like uh, a sardine, we sit back to back. And here's the thing, you know, not only was it super packed, but the journey was also super dangerous. Their ship was damaged, it was taking on water, and they floated in the ocean for about four days. There was no water, no food, and uh, the beating of the sun and everything else is began to take toll. And for some people, they began to pass out because of the dehydrations. Most of us believe that we gonna die in the oceans. But then, after four days, the boat was finally spotted by a Danish merchant ship. The ship took everyone to Hong Kong and dropped off those 4,000 people at a refugee camp. And then Fong stays there for about six months, and then he gets resettled to the United States in El Paso, Texas. Oh my gosh, like, he has been through so much. So what happened to him next? Yeah, so he's still with his siblings, his older brother, his sister... You know, but shortly after getting resettled into El Paso, you know, his sister gets married, his brother finds work, so he's not around a lot of times. And so Fong, he really just ends up raising himself. I put myself to bed, uh, wash my clothes, cook, uh, as well as do my homework all at the same time when I was 11, 12 years old. Gosh, that that is a lot for a 12-year-old boy to take on. I would imagine, too, like... You know, this 12-year-old boy comes with these idealized hopes, these dreams of what life in America is going to be like. And instead, like, he ends up with this really difficult life here. Yeah, being an immigrant in the United States, it can be a pretty isolating experience. So I just want to leave Fong's story here for a moment. We'll put a pause on that. 
So we can hear from a woman named Mei Wang, who articulates this really well. I think the only knowledge I know about America is almost like from the show that I watch on the TV. A lot of heroes, a lot of beautiful people. So it's a very desirable place. Of course, I have a lot of positive expectations. So this is Mei Wang. I'm married. And as a matter of fact, uh, I am quite married. I'm a grandmother now. Uh, right now, I guess I consider I am entering the senior year. Okay, so Mei grew up in Hong Kong in the early 1960s. She had a family of eight, mom, dad, six kids. And she actually went to a Christian school. And that was pretty common. You know, Christianity was pretty well accepted in Hong Kong. Well, I finished high school. I was not a good student at all. I did not do well with my grades uh, at the entrance exam to college. So I was not in any good place uh, after high school graduation. And so at the time, May's older siblings were in college in the U.S., so it just made sense for her to go there as well. And to May, the U.S. was the place to be. You know, she was so excited to go. She even joined an English club in Hong Kong to help prepare herself. And to be honest, she thought she wouldn't have any problems fitting in. When I first come here, I start to speak English. It was so shocked to know it, the people in the shop, they don't understand my English. I realized they don't understand my accents. They don't get my broken English. So it was a humiliating discovery. I realized, wow, I, I thought I'm quite prepared for a new country, but actually I couldn't even manage the language at the beginning. So it was a rough start. Oh my gosh, like her experiences versus her expectations, like the gap is like so wide, yeah. you know, and you hear her say like, I was humiliated, like, it's just like heartbreaking. Yeah, I know. It was such a jarring experience for her. You know, at this point, she's 21 years old and she's a freshman in college. So she's a lot older than most people in her classes. You know, she's going through major culture shock. You know, the food is different. The city feels different. Maybe was just so used to Hong Kong's crowded shops and streets. When I first came here, I said, where are the people? I would just say, how come nighttime nobody get on the street? Where are they? So I think that emptiness without people really brought me a lot of homesick. So it, it was a lonely adjustment. Okay, so May thinks to solve her problems, she needs to become more, quote-unquote, American. So to do that, May and her friend visited an American church. But what they didn't realize was that it was a Pentecostal, charismatic church. So very emotional, very expressive, with tears, with song. At that time, I said, wow, what is this? Is this what American shows you? What are they doing? It almost scared me when I see they're so emotional. Uh, they broke out with tears, with words that I have no idea what they're talking about. So we were totally lost, me and my friend. Oh my gosh, I cannot imagine that scene. Like, what an experience to accidentally yeah. stumble on. Like, that is quite the subculture American experience. Right, yeah. And in a lot of East Asian cultures, intense expressiveness is its just not common, especially in religious context. And to be clear, this is not to put down Pentecostal churches. It was just such a shocking church experience for May, and she really wants to be a part of a church. 
And at this point, she's starting to develop a personal relationship with the Lord for the first time, but she doesn't have a church to turn to. Okay, wait, so hold on. So did she end up going back to that Pentecostal church? <laughs> no, definitely not. But one day, May's on the phone with one of her Chinese friends, and he invites her to his church, First Chinese Baptist Church of L.A. So when I walk in, I feel so excited. I said, there's all the people that I miss. And they all under one place. And we all sing Chinese song. It's a song that I can recognize. And then the pastor, when he preached, I can actually understand and I get to hear my own Cantonese language again. So it brought so much home to me. Immediately, I fall in love with the church. I said, this is the place I want to be. Uh, you can just like hear her coming alive. Like you can hear so much yeah. excitement in her voice. Yeah, I know. It's so sweet. You know, not only is she hearing her own language, but she's also around people who look like her, who've had similar life experiences. And there's like so many like cultural things that are unspoken that she doesn't have to interpret. It's just she understands, they understand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for May, she was able to engage right away. You know, on Sundays, she attended Sunday morning services, Sunday evening services. She ate lunch with the church friends. She went to trainings, workshops, and even attended Sunday school. For me to attend Sunday school every Sunday is a high point of my week. I just love to sit in the class to learn more and learn more. So I think through those years learning Sunday school really speak to me in a very personal way. Because in Hong Kong, I grew up, I attend church. I always thought that I was a Christian. I think not until that moment I rededicate my life in uh, one of the revival meetings that happened in that church. I consider that is the beginning of my spiritual walk with Jesus. Wow, it's like being, you know, in a church that was like her own culture, her own context, like it really made a difference in her life. Right, and the same ended up being true for Fong. So after the break, We'll get back to his story. Stay with us. Hey, LTN listeners, it's Anna. Recently, we asked some of our alumni how serving with Love Thy Neighborhood has impacted them. Hey, this is Deshaun from New Orleans. Deshaun served with us for a summer, and his time with Love Thy Neighborhood challenged him to become more vulnerable relationally with the people around him, with his teammates, neighbors, and everyone else he came into contact with. And for me, that was really tough. It was really scary. But although it was scary, um, at the end of the day, it was worth it because it brings tremendous honor and glory to God. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30 through the areas of service, community, and discipleship. You'll grow in your faith and your life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. It's the Love the Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. Anna Tran. Today's episode, where the gospel meets the immigrant church. So we're following the story of Fong Tran, who came to the United States from Vietnam as a refugee fleeing war. Okay, so Anna, where exactly did we last leave Fong? Right. Okay, so when we last left Fong, he was in El Paso. He was feeling pretty lonely. 
know, after three years in El Paso, he and his brother, they moved to New York. He's now around 15 years old. While they're in New York, they get word from some of their friends they had back in Vietnam. And actually, these friends were the ones who helped them get passage on the boat. Oh, okay. They found out that their friends have resettled in a town called Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is about three hours from New York. Oh, Lancaster, where you are from. That's right. Correct. So Fong, he would make the trip as often as he could to Lancaster to visit those friends. When we learned that they not too far away, my brother would uh, drove me from New York to Lancaster. And later on, I took the train bound pretty frequent to Lancaster. And so he spends time with his friends and he finds out that they've become Christians. And when he would visit his friends, you know, they'd ask him, hey, do you want to go to church with us? Well, with nothing to do, I said, sure. So at this point, you know, Fong, he's a lapsed Catholic. So going to church in Lancaster, it's really just about hanging out with his friends. First of all, we grew up together back in Vietnam, so we know each other. And the most enticing aspect of it is there's a lot of girls in church. (laughs) So basically he's like a teenage guy. (laughs) Right. Fong, he's going to church just to be social. He just wants to hang out with his friends. You know, in New York, he didn't have other Vietnamese people to hang out with. So because this was a Vietnamese church, Fong, he could get a little taste of home there. Things like people talking in his heart language. So wait, wait, what do you mean by heart language? Right. Heart language is, you know, the first language a person learns to speak and communicate with. It's the language that they can emotionally resonate with. In Fong's case, you know, as a kid, he learned to communicate and speak in Vietnamese. But once he moved to the U.S., you know, he learned and spoke English. He's bilingual, but he still considers Vietnamese to be his heart language. I see. Okay. So Fong continues to go to church whenever he visits his friends in Lancaster. And he also starts going to events outside of just Sunday service. His favorite event of the year was this church family summer camp. And because everything is in his heart language, you know, one year at this camp, he's able to have, you know, a life-changing conversation with a pastor. And he asked me, how long have I been in church? I said, well, uh, I've been in church on and off because I live in New York and I just come down to Lancaster uh, once in a while, and that's when I go to church. And finally, he said, you know, if something happened to you, you know uh, uh, where you go. So I told him, you know, for sure, I know for sure that I would not go to hell because I believe in God. But to heaven, I doubt it. You know, the pastor goes on to share the gospel to him in Vietnamese. He goes through scriptures, shares Bible verses with him, and he goes on for two hours. Oh my gosh, two hours is a long time. I know, right? All I want to do is just to get out of there, get showers, and get something to eat. But he sit down, he explained to me step by step. And finally, he asked me, do you want to accept Christ into your heart as your Lord and Saviors? I said, no. I said, I already have God. I don't need to reaffirm that anymore. But that same night, there's an evening service. That same pastor he had just talked to was preaching. And Fong, he's kind of zoning in and out as per usual. But then that pastor makes an altar call. I begin to remember what he uh, said to me uh, during our time together about how 
Jesus died for our sin and because how sinful we are especially with me growing up in a uh, in America by myself there's not much love there's not much uh, relationship so I long for that so that's one of the reasons that I stood up and I accepted Christ that time Yeah, I mean, on one level, like, that makes so much sense to me because we need to hear things in a language that we have the most depth in. Mm -hmm. Like, I understand Vietnamese, but I came to understand the gospel in English. So I'm able to really resonate emotionally with English as well as Vietnamese. So it kind of depends for me. But for Fong, through being at a Vietnamese church, you know, being around Vietnamese people— You know, someone was able to share the gospel to him in his own heart language, you know, in a way he could understand and resonate with. Yeah, that's beautiful. So after the camp, you know, Fong is still spending a lot of time in Lancaster. And later, you know, in his early 20s, he goes to college. He actually becomes a pastor and he really commits himself to serving other Vietnamese churches. Yeah, so like... There can be some real benefits to being able to be a part of a church that is your own sort of, for lack of a better term, like default culture. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but that doesn't mean that immigrant churches don't come without struggles or hardship. You know, for one thing, there's a concept of first generation and second generation immigrants. Which is what? What is that concept? Yeah, so first generation, you know, I think of my parents. They were born in another country, and then they came to the United States. You know, for me, I would be second generation because I was born in the United States. So my home culture is of my parents' culture, but I live my daily life in the majority American culture. And so this tension between, you know, first generation and second generation, that's something that May talked about in our conversation. You know, so May's been attending the same Chinese church for a while. You know, and naturally, May and her husband, they decide to raise their kids in the church. But she also shared with me some of these tensions that she experienced when it came to, you know, faith and parenting. Even small things like music. For me, Christian music is pretty much should be the main stream of music. But for them, hello, there's a world, another world of music out there. So they brought in different kind of music. It's almost shocked my ear. I said, how could you listen to that kind of music? Did you know what they're singing? And so I, I, I think that already shocked me and also my ignorance shocked them. May, you know, she assumed that her kids would just work out their faith just like she would. I pretty much came to Christ without my parents. They can do the same too. So I sent them to church. I make sure they attend Sunday school. They will love Sunday school just like I did. So there should be no problem. And she also noticed that, you know, the way she experienced God in church was super different from what her kids experienced. I strongly believe that Bible is the absolute truth. And our God is the only one and only one God of the universe. Believing in Jesus is something that is very logical, very simple. For me to live for God, to serve my church, to love my people, I thought that it's, it's just so easy, so natural. But I feel like for my children, their journey of faith is very, very different, a lot more complex. Their mission in life is really goes beyond their church or community. And they try to look for God 
in the non-Christian world. I look for God. I find God in the Christian world, but they want to see God's footprint in the non-Christian world. Yeah, I mean, Anna, like, what do you think when you hear that? Your parents raised you in an immigrant church. Do you think that they felt similar to May? Like that tension of their experience versus what their kids are going to experience? Yeah, I I really resonated with you know what May said. It's like her kids wanting to find and experience God in a non-Christian world. Because it's like, I was in this like Christian Vietnamese world. So like when I went to college and you know throughout high school, I was like looking for things outside of, you know, like that Vietnamese church. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and so I can't relate as much to May and Fong's story, but my experiences are a lot more similar to this guy I talked to. My name's David Lee. Grew up, born and raised in New York City. Okay, so this is David. He grew up in Flushing, Queens, where over half of the population is Asian. So David, he's Korean, and he went to a Korean church growing up. His mom, she's a devout Christian, and she went to almost every event and church meeting. And, you know, naturally, David went along to all of it. That means going to church almost every morning at 5.30 to just pray by yourself in a dark room surrounded by other people. And then you got to hit up the Wednesday night, the Friday night, and like the all-day Sunday. Like, I didn't watch any football until I got to college because Sunday, like, there was just no time to go home and watch football. Oh, my gosh. He gets, like, the uh, the gold pass for church, <laughs> you know? Like, right. that is some serious church hours. Yeah, totally. David, he was at church a lot. And in immigrant churches, it's common that there's a linguistic gap. So oftentimes, it's almost like there's two congregations in the same church. So one in the heart language and the other one in English. David, he can understand and he can speak Korean. But most of the time, he went to services and youth gatherings in English. Like, I felt like I was living two very separate like lives because I was really involved in school, did a lot of stuff in school. But then my entire weekend was always filled up with church. I remember when I was like 15, our whole youth group read through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Either every week we either had a test or a paper on like that chapter. What is he talking about as like a 15-year-old reading Wayne Grudem and taking tests yeah. at church? Yeah, I definitely never did that. And just to clarify, this is not representative of all Korean churches. But one thing that is really common in Korean churches is a passion for prayer. Yeah, I mean, I remember David saying something about, you know, praying by himself in a dark room surrounded by <laughs> other people like that. That sounds like super specific. Yeah. In my research, you know, I talked with Pastor John Lee. He grew up in a Korean church and he was a pastor's kid. And he's done a lot of writing and thinking about immigrant churches. So he explained to me that in the early 1900s, you know, missionaries came to Korea. They shared the gospel, planted churches, and they hosted these prayer meetings. And then what happens is at a prayer meeting, um, everyone begins to pray together out loud, kind of this congregational vocal praying. And then what started happening, which was so countercultural to Korean society, was people began walking up to the front and just publicly confessing their sin in front of other people. And here's a clip of what one of those prayer meetings could sound like. It's fascinating. It's like um, like there's so much emotion in the room simultaneously, like so mm. many people crying out to the Lord all at once. Yeah. 
it almost kind of sounds like a cacophony as well. It's yeah. like it's kind of hard to tell what's going on. You kind of hear like there's music in the background. There's like someone on a microphone, but then also the congregation is like praying out loud. Yeah, there's but there's like a fervor in the room, yeah. you know? Yeah, so much energy. Yeah, like it's so different than like the world that I've come from, which is like a lot of the white evangelical church where it's like everything's very orderly. You know, mm. like we pray one at a time, you know, there can be sort of a formality to it. And mm. that has like just an air of like raw expression. Yeah. yeah, And it's even like, you know, different from other, you know, East Asian cultures, too. You know, like in May's case, she was really alarmed by all of the emotion from, you know, the Pentecostal church that she visited. You know, but in this case, there's intense expressiveness coming from a different East Asian culture. So these prayer movements, it started like a mass spread of Christianity in Korea. And then through this kind of prayer movement, you see evangelism spread. And so that really is kind of at the heart of Korean Christianity in a lot of ways is this uh, passion for prayer and desire to see the spirit move kind of similar to the way that it had when it first arrived in Korea. And this is how David came to know Christ. At the time, his parents, they were going through a divorce and it was during one of these long prayer meetings at a retreat that he really felt God reaching out to him. But every night I would just pray so much that like God would fix my family, that God would make things better, you know, all these things uh, interspersed with zoning out and naps and things that happen when you're 12 and in a dark room for four hours. And I really feel like the Lord met me there. And I really feel like after a while, I had this deep feeling of feeling like God was better than the brokenness in my life and that God's love was more powerful than the hatred in my family. Man, that, that like resonates with me. Like I went through a really difficult time around that same age, you know, that he was in like the church in so many ways was like a family for me, you know, where mm. my own home life was like pretty broken. And, uh, and it feels like, you know, his church really helped him to experience the love of God in a way that he really needed at the time. Yeah, but we also know that being part of a church also comes with, you know, its hurts and pains. You know, and immigrant churches aren't impervious to that. You know, fast forward and David's now in high school, he's 18. And one time, he and a few other guys and girls from his youth group, they go out to eat. We took three girls from our youth group and we went to this Korean barbecue restaurant bar type of thing that we knew like didn't card. And we just drank a ton. We all just got absolutely plastered. You know, when talking with David, he totally owns up to his actions as a teenager. You know, but then he goes back to church on a Wednesday as normal. Everything seems fine. But then... I showed up to play basketball and then they told me to, the leadership told me to leave and that I wasn't welcome there anymore. Essentially, David didn't really go through any formal process of church discipline. They just told him, hey, you're not allowed to come back here. <laughs> Hold on. That escalated really quickly. Yeah. What happened just now? Yeah. Essentially, David, he doesn't get any counsel or formal church discipline. They don't like sit him down to tell him like, hey, this is what's going on. You know, he is just told, hey, you're not welcome back here. You're not allowed to come back. So, you know, a little time goes by, maybe about a week, and then eventually they just say again, hey, you can just come back to Sunday services, but... 
like only Sunday service, but I had to come right before and leave right after and that I was not welcome at any other church activities or events or and like these people that I considered to be some of my closest friends, they just stopped talking to me. So very minimal communication, just this sense of getting kind of scarlet lettered, like I was suddenly a pariah. Gosh, that was fast. And I feel so bad for him, like with the church having played such a huge role in his life to suddenly have so many relationships, you know, on the line. Yeah, like he goes from spending so much time at the church, he's hanging out with his friends there all the time, to just like being kicked out. Yeah, to being like cast out. Yeah, and sadly, this isn't an uncommon experience. You know, this makes me think of, you know, honor-shame culture. And New Testament scholar Michael Gorman, he defines it as ongoing attribution or loss of esteem by one's peers, family, social class. You know, essentially, personal approval, you know, whether positive or negative, you know, it's defined by peers, your family, and social status. And from my understanding, you know, the U.S., like, we are not an honor-shame society as a whole. Yeah, for sure. You know, based on data from Global Mapping International, honor-shame, it's the dominant culture for most people in the world. And this often becomes really heavy-handed in immigrant churches because people in immigrant churches are often holding really tightly to specific values because they're just trying to feel at home in a foreign country. There are pros to this, but for sure, there are cons. Again, here's Pastor John Lee. Parents are coming into a new land, uh, hopefully seek a better life for their children and for themselves. And they're wanting to hear the gospel in their own language. So they come together to be able to worship together, to encourage one another as kind of one big kind of communal immigrant family uh, in order to care for their own children. Part of the difficulty with that, though, is that you have a community of Christians that's inevitably kind of unified and identified by one thing in addition to just their unity in Christ. Okay, so in this context, like, so David, like, got the boot, basically. Like, what ends up happening to him? Yeah, so essentially he really doesn't have the time to process this because a few weeks after he gets kicked out, he goes to college. And this was really challenging for David. He was so used to being around, you know, Korean people, Asian people. That was just his environment in New York. But in college, he is in Illinois, and the city that he's in, it's only, you know, 9% Asian. It's predominantly white. But David, he ends up finding community and belonging in an unexpected way. Stay with us. Here at LTN, we're all about helping people build better relationships. And we've actually created a brand new way to do that with our Say More conversation cards. Say More is a deck of 100 questions to kickstart engaging discussions. So there's silly things like, which famous cartoon character are you most like? And there's also serious things like, what has been your hardest goodbye in life? You can use our Say More cards with your family, your friends, on a date, at the office. My family and I have been using them at the dinner table, and I've learned things about my kids that I truly never knew before. To grab your own deck of Say More cards, go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. And while you're there, grab a couple more decks. They make great gifts for Christmas or birthdays, and all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So... Go to lovethatneighborhood.org and 
click store and get ready to say more because better relationships are just a question away. Love That Neighborhood Podcast, Jesse Eubanks. Anna Tran. Today's episode, where the gospel meets the immigrant church. So we've been hearing the story of David. He becomes unwelcome at his church. He's just started college, and he doesn't really know where he fits or belongs. That's right. But while in college, a couple people decide they're going to befriend David. But these people, they aren't Korean. And then these, like, nice white people would, like, come knock on my door and, like, invite me to play dodgeball or to eat pancakes or to go ice skating. They were so nice and they were so unrelatable to me. They were a different species, these white guys. And I felt so uncomfortable with them. Like, I really hated it. But I was so thankful that they wanted to hang out with me, that they were willing to invest in me, that they reached out and, like, to me when no one asked them to and no one else did. And so I kind of like pushed through that discomfort. I would say for about two years until I kind of started really feeling like I could integrate and I had real genuine relationships and friendships uh, as a part of that white evangelical community. Yeah, so these friends were part of crew. It's like a campus ministry. Yeah, exactly. It really gave David a place to belong. But like he said, it felt like he had to integrate and adapt to be able to relate to those friends. He didn't have trouble accepting the teaching he experienced at Crew. Those were similar enough to his Korean church. It was just these small cultural things he started to notice. Things like music or what they talked about in their downtime. Like I had to watch Hot Rod and Napoleon Dynamite just so I could understand half the things that people were saying, you know? And like, you know, I, I learned about baseball, <laughs> you know? I don't know, all these like kind of seemingly minor things. <laughs> These are like such like classic college guy movies, like Napoleon yeah. Dynamite and the Hot Rod. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I've never seen those. And they may seem like, you know, inconsequential things, but you know, those small cultural similarities that, you know, David didn't share, it contributed to some of the bigger questions that he was processing through. Why do I feel so uncomfortable at church? Like, where do I belong in the world? There were points throughout college where David was wrestling and processing his thoughts about his identity, you know, as an Asian American. He talked about how at times, you know, he felt resentful to Korean people because of his past experiences. But one friend at school who was Korean, she had similar family and church backgrounds, and they'd talk about their experiences. It was just so helpful for David to have someone who was able to understand and affirm his experiences. Like, I'm not crazy, right? Like, the fact that I feel so betrayed or that I kind of hate Korean people, even though I love being Korean, like, I'm not stupid, right? And I feel like that was really helpful. That friendship was really valuable to me. You know, after a lot of discomfort, David, he was able to become friends with the people at Crew. But he talked about this tension that he felt when he compared himself to other Korean people he saw. I would look at Korean people from afar and I'd see them all hanging out together, and I would kind of judge them for not being able to be as, like, open. Like, I thought I could judge them just after three seconds of looking at them from afar, and I thought that I wouldn't be accepted by them, and they are not accepted by me. Now I'm, like, realizing how much more nuanced it is, and, you know, I would have been just like that if I had not been kicked out of my church. 
That's interesting. Um, I want to be thoughtful how I ask this question sure. of you. Yeah. Um, but like, you have gone out and experienced a lot of different kinds of cultures in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like, is there a time where you've ever looked at other Vietnamese people and felt similarly to what David is sharing? Mm. Yeah, I think um, what he said that last part about, you know, judging other Korean people for not being able to kind of be like him. There were, you know, many times where I would be either a little bit frustrated of Vietnamese people or just like me being Vietnamese in general because it wasn't in line with most of the culture that I was around. Like on Sundays, my parents would take me to church at our little Vietnamese church and at home, our culture was Vietnamese, but during school and at some point through middle school and high school, um, I went to like a large, predominantly white megachurch. And that just seemed to be way cooler and much more with the times and, you know, the little Vietnamese church that I went to. I mean, there were times where I was not, I didn't celebrate, you know, my Vietnamese heritage. And in some ways, similar to David, like looked down on even other Vietnamese people my age because they weren't um, being, yeah, like open-minded to like leaving those comfort zones. Mm. So going back to David, he goes through life and he's able to vocalize and notice some of these cultural tensions. For example, he started noticing that his mom expressed her faith much differently than him. David said that at home, he and his parents, they rarely talked about faith. When I ask her a question like, what is the Lord teaching you lately? Like she just doesn't have the upbringing or the tools to like kind of digest that question properly. And the same thing when like, Sometimes I'm at home and I start eating before I prayed. She's like, I cannot believe that he just did that. Is he even Christian? Yeah, you know, like that kind of reminds me of a May's example when she was talking about her and her kids as it relates to like music. Like she was like, why do you not only listen to Christian music? It's the best music. And her kids are like, why would you only listen to Christian music? Yeah, the communication breakdown is totally there. You know, a lot of times with both first and second generations, you know, life continues to move forward even while living in the misunderstandings. But even with all the cultural tensions and struggles, at the end of the day, the immigrant church is still the church. And there are some things about the church that just cross cultural boundaries, which is something that, you know, Fong Tran discovered. So like I said earlier, after becoming a Christian, you know, Fong, he goes on to be a pastor so he could share the gospel with other Vietnamese people. But like David, he quickly discovered that even immigrant churches have their own share of tensions. You know, one time in his early 20s, Fong and the senior pastor he worked for had disagreements of how to effectively minister to the church. He's much older and I'm much younger, so get to the point that, you know, I said I couldn't deal with it. The senior pastor wanted Fong to be present at the church building the majority of the day, while Fong thought that he could be out and about meeting people around the city. And one day, you know, Fong goes out to lunch with a church member, but he comes back and the senior pastor confronts him saying, you know, you're supposed to be at church. You're not supposed to be out to lunch. I said, what? I can't have lunch? So that's when everything 
escalate into a situations that I said, you know, this is too much and this is not something I sign up for. I can't do ministry like this. So I just pack up and I left. I feel like I see like versions of this all the time, you know, at the time, like what Fong was in his early 20s. Yeah, he was around, you know, 23, 24. Yeah. And so and then he's serving under this older pastor and like on the outside, like we're hearing oh, like they broke up the ministry over lunch. Like that doesn't make any sense. But like there's all these much bigger issues at play. Like there's cultural issues, generational issues, values, ways of seeing. There's issues of power and influence and like there's just so many things at play like it's kind of a wonder that any church kind of holds itself together yeah this situation it just wasn't about lunch it was just like the tail end of many other you know church tensions and conflicts difference of leadership styles so after he leaves the church fong still wants to do ministry but just not the way that he had been doing it before so he just comes to the conclusion that he needs to be free and have his own control and in his mind, the way to do that is with money. I thought to myself that the only ways I can serve effectively if I am rich, then I don't need the church. Okay, so Fong goes back to New York City, and then a friend of his, one day, takes him down to Atlantic City to gamble at the casinos. And after a few trips, you know, Fong starts to think to himself, you know, this is a way to make quick money. Oh man, I have lost money myself as a young man in Atlantic City. It is a painful experience. Yeah, and this wasn't just a one-time thing. I would go to work from 9 to 5, and at 5 o'clock I would take a bus from New York to Atlantic City and gamble throughout the night and get back to New York at 8, shower, go to work. Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, you know what's crazy is that like, when I interviewed him, that was the first time I was hearing these details about his story. You know, growing up, I heard his name, but the only thing that my parents really told me about him was he got into some stuff in Vegas. Well, it turns out <laughs> that his stuff was that he was a high-stakes gambler. I know. It was pretty wild. You know, this lasted about four months, and then one day, he decides to bet all of his money once and for all. My goal was a million dollars. A million dollars at that time is pretty big. So I bought a one-way plane ticket from New York to Las Vegas. After eight hours of gambling, I lost everything. I had no dollars in my bank account. I got nothing left. Now my dilemma is how in the world I'm gonna get back. So as I wander, Somehow I found a $10 bills on the floor of the casinos. So I just figured, okay, let's get something to eat. But I took two steps. I put the $10 into the slot machine. And lo and behold, I hit a jackpot for 1100 No way. <laughs> oh my God. This is unheard of. No way. Then I run straight back to the table and after... Uh, four more, five more hours, that's about like six o'clock in the morning. I get back all my money plus more. And that's how I got stuck for 14 years. Wait, 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 14 years. I know, right? But what does that mean? Like, what does he mean when he says he's stuck for 14 years? All right, right. So essentially, from that time he won that jackpot, he stayed in Vegas for another 14 years. 
He didn't leave. He didn't go anywhere. Basically getting addicted to gambling. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And throughout those years, you know, he won some money. He lost some money. He was homeless for the first few years. But eventually, he made his money back to several hundred thousand dollars. You know, but after years and years of this, he just gets fed up. One time, you know, after three days of gambling straight, the house at the casino, they set him up with a really nice penthouse suite at the Bellagio. But then he walks up there with a bottle of cognac. And that's when it dawned on me that this is the life that I'm in. And I said, if this the life that I'm in for the rest of my life, I don't want any part of it. Because now you are sick and tired of doing this every single day. Yeah, like, this is so sad because, like, Fong's original thing was, I want to be a pastor. Like, I want to serve people. I want to tell people about God. And then he comes up with this, like, really bad idea, you know, which is, like, I just need a lot of money to be able Mm. to tell people about God, and I need to find money fast. But, like, his story has gone so far off script from Mm. where he first wanted to go and who he wanted to be. Yeah. And at this point, you know, no one from his family or the church back in Lancaster has been in touch with him. But then, you know, out of the blue, Fong gets a phone call from his brother. Somehow he found me. And the thing is, he said to me that, please come home. So I said, okay, this is one way for me to come home, just to show people that I'm still alive. Fong's brother and his friends from church, you know, they took Fong back to Lancaster. There, he would have Christian brothers and sisters, you know, to support him. And those years had really taken a toll on his body. You know, he was 90 pounds when he returns. Nine zero. Oh my gosh, wow. Just skin and bones. Wow. They hugged me. They asked me to come to dinners. They didn't ask me how I was, where I've been, what I've been doing, why I'm wasting my life and all of this thing. All they do was just hug me and then ask me to have dinner with them. At that moment, it began to dawn on me. That's what I long for, the love and the, the forgiveness and all those things. That is like so beautiful. It, it actually reminds me of uh, this quote from the author Philip Yancey. He says, um, I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned because I found grace nowhere else. Mm. And I feel like that summarizes the church so well. It's yeah. like the church can be so horrible at times and drive so many of us away. And yet at the same time, it is totally God's conduit for love and grace. And like you see that in this moment. Yeah. Yeah, just because, you know, a church is made up of one specific ethnic group or it's started by immigrants. So, you know, it's a church. And I just love how this story is just an example of, you know, the church being the church. And while he was in Vegas, you know, Fong, he lost all of his ID cards and he really had to start from square one, start from scratch. But, you know, it was the people from church that really stepped up, helped him, gave him housing, food to eat, place to stay and welcoming him back into the church. I can't imagine how I'd be happy in my life or I am at peace with my life uh, because ever since I was young, I'm always away from my family. So without the church, I think I'm lost in this world. 
I might be successful, I might be rich, I might be a lot of different things, but I still think, you know, I will not be at peace as I am right now. Like in Fong's story in Vegas, in so many ways, any kind of Christian could have rolled up and loved him well and been a path towards, you know, reconciliation. But like, mm. but in his story, it was a church, you know, that he had these deep cultural ties to. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that played a special role in his redemption story? Yeah. Yeah, I just think about how immigrant churches are so family-oriented. And, you know, in Fong's story, the presence of a steady family was absent in his early life. And the Vietnamese church, I think, just, like, really filled that gap. And also, like, these were people who knew Fong's story. They are, like, a direct representation of his heritage. And for his Vietnamese community to welcome him back, to love him, to care for him, it, like, offers a particular kind of healing. And... It's just like a specific experience when the people of your roots come for you and genuinely accept you as you are. Yeah, it's like a specific kind of depth compared to like a new community, you know, coming and loving him, but they're not part of his roots. For sure. And us talking about like sort of being loved by the people of your roots, you know, like... For David, did he ever end up reconciling with his Korean church from New York? Overall, yes. You know, it's been 10 years since, you know, David got busted for getting drunk with his friends. You know, he said people have generally moved on, but his interactions, you know, are generally on this, like, spectrum. Some acknowledge the incident, some pretend like it never happened. But as a whole, his experiences in college and his relationship with the Lord those really helped him move past the jarring experience. And honestly, connecting with God himself and just God really uh, opening my heart and expanding my worldview and understanding what it might mean to have forgiveness or to acknowledge my fault while also acknowledging that I was wrong, like simultaneously. You know, there's that old phrase, uh, God doesn't waste our pain. And in this scenario, like, it makes me think of, like, David had this really painful experience where his own community sort of thrust him out because of the mistakes that he made. But God seems to have used that actually to open up his eyes to a broader movement of the Lord, you know, outside of just his Korean church. Yeah, for sure. David told me when he was 23, he decided to commit to being an overseas missionary in East Asia. In his experiences in college and at his Korean church, it's given him the ability to navigate, you know, different cultures. It's really helped him in his missions work. I can go to Asia and feel so comfortable. I'm already so culturally malleable just by virtue of the way that I grew up. I think there's so much beauty to be had there and this ability to kind of be cultural liaisons, to experience multiple multiple sides of things. Um I can go to my Korean church and like talk to them about what it's like to be a missionary. And I can go to this, you know, white evangelical church and do the same thing. And like, that's a really special thing. And I think immigrant churches really foster those kinds of environments. I think like after hearing all of these stories, man, I think there's a real 
beautiful space that immigrant churches fill that is really needed. All of your default ways of doing things, suddenly you have to question them, you have to adapt them. And for immigrant churches to offer a space where people can worship in their own heart language, where they can discuss those specific tensions in a way that other people are going to understand and empathize with, and the way in which you see, like, the Lord show up, like, you are a stranger in a strange land, and I'm going to be faithful to you, and I'm going to show up, and I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to give you this community of people to journey with you. And to even see that transition happen from, like, first generation to second generation, because first generation, it's like, it seems like a very particular set of hardships, mm-hmm. but then second generation bear the burden of even more so being bridges between the old culture and the new culture. And I think in both those contexts, like, immigrant churches play a really special role as a community, just spurring people to walk with Jesus in this new country. Yeah, and immigrant churches are another part, another member of the church body here in the United States and in countries all around the world. You know, whether or not we belong to an immigrant church or not, whether or not we are immigrants or we're born here in the U.S., you know, the Bible says that we're all foreigners in a foreign land as Christians. Earth here is not our heavenly home. And the immigrant church is a great reminder of that. And, you know, at the end of the day, immigrant churches, non-immigrant churches, multi-ethnic churches, we're all working towards building the kingdom of God. If you've benefited at all from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Your review will help other people discover our show. Special thanks to our interviewees for this episode, Fong Tran, Mei Wong, and David Lee. Also, special thanks to Dr. Daniel K. Ang and John Lee. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Anna Tran, who is also our media director and producer, and who I caught trying to jam her hand up into the vending machine the other day. And that's how I got stuck for 14 years. Additional editing by Rachel Zabo. Audio engineering by me, Anna Tran. Music for today's episode comes from Kindred Worship, Lee Rosevere, Poddington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30 through the areas of service, community, and discipleship. You'll grow in your faith and your life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise.